Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we continue to pay tribute to the late Gordon Lightfoot, who passed away in Toronto on Monday at the age of 84. We discover more about the man behind the music by speaking to his biographer and longtime friend Nicholas Jennings about his memories of Lightfoot and the last conversation they had just a few weeks ago now. We head to the shores of Lake Superior to find out how a single Lightfoot song, 1976's huge hit, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, forever raised awareness about that tragedy and overall interest in the history of shipwrecks and the crews that were on them on the Great Lakes over the centuries. And Canadian singer-songwriter Andy Kim, who's composed some very big hits himself, joins us to talk about writing songs, why he was such a big Gordon Lightfoot fan, and one particularly awkward first encounter with Lightfoot at O'Hare Airport in Chicago back in the late 60s. But first, the Trudeau government is contending with yet another China-related crisis tonight after it was revealed that a CSIS report containing allegations that the family of a Conservative MP could be targeted for retaliation due to his political activities in Canada. The Prime Minister, his National Security Advisor, even the head of CSIS, met with Michael Chong today to share details of the intelligence with him two years after the fact. The question is now, who saw that report back in 2021? Who was responsible for warning the MP, Michael Chong? And why wasn't it done? But let's start tonight in Ottawa, where the hockey season ended long ago, but politics, it's still going on. Accusations were flying across the House of Commons today that the government didn't do enough to warn an opposition MP about allegations that Beijing was looking to intimidate his family in Hong Kong. A Globe and Mail report citing CISA's sources and a 2021 report says that China was targeting longtime Conservative MP Michael Chong, Toronto area MP, and was looking for information on his family. What the spy agency suspects was a way to deter Canadian politicians, such as Chong, from taking critical stances on issues such as human rights, Tibet and Taiwan. Well, today, according to the Globe and Mail, uh, CSIS confirmed to Chong that he and his family were targeted by the Chinese government after he sponsored a parliamentary motion condemning Beijing's conduct in Xinjiang in western China, where the Uyghurs are, as genocide, the MP told the paper. He also said that CSIS confirmed that Zhao Wei, a Chinese diplomat in this country, was involved in that process. Now, the Globe and Mail first reported the situation yesterday, setting that top-secret CSIS intelligence assessment prepared in July of 2021. The briefing uh, to Michael Chong took place today. Now, that issue, again, dominated uh, question period in the House of Commons. Here's an exchange between the leader of the official opposition, Pierre Polyev, and the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. July of 2021, the government had a CSIS document showing that an agent for the dictatorship in Beijing was arranging to sanction and punish the family of a Canadian MP because of how he voted on the floor of the House of Commons. And yet for two years, this Prime Minister's government kept that agent accredited with diplomatic immunity, allowing him to abuse countless other Canadians of Chinese origin. How can we believe anything he says about protecting our national interests? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, let's 
simply not true. It's actually irresponsible to suggest that any government uh, might sit on a matter of such seriousness. Based on briefings that I received following yesterday's story, I know that steps have been taken to protect members when they could be in the spotlight of foreign actors because of the legitimate work they do in this place. And our security agencies will continue to independently do this important work, and I have indeed followed up directly with the member for Halton Hills to reassure him on this. The member, meantime, says the failure to notify him of China's targeting represents either a breakdown of the machinery of government or a political failure by the Liberal government. Joining me now is Stephen Chase. He's one of the reporters on this story for the Globe and Mail. He's a senior parliamentary correspondent. Stephen, thank you. Oh, glad to be here. These, I mean, this is quite the story, and it's, it's, it's hard to understand where it fell down. Do we know who was supposed or who would have technically been in charge of informing Michael Chong that this threat was out there? No, we don't. And you put your finger on the most important question out there. Uh, what happened to this information? And how come he wasn't warned? And who's responsible? Now, we have more information we've just published on our website we can now confirm that it was, in fact, an extraordinary meeting today. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau brought Mr. Chong into a meeting with the National Security Advisor, Jody Thomas, and the Director of CSIS, David Vignon. This meeting took place on, on Parliament Hill in the West Block shortly before question period. This is where um, Mr. Vigneault confirmed what had happened, and this is where Jody Thomas told him, pledged him they'll get to the bottom of it. So... We have more detail on our website. It was just updated a few minutes ago. Right. So he was given a briefing right from the top then, Michael Chong. Yeah, extraordinary. An opposition MP brought into a meeting by Mr. Trudeau. Obviously, there is a mistake made here, and the government is scrambling to catch up. Because, I mean, you've done a, you and, and, and Bob Fife, the bureau chief there, have done a lot of reporting about allegations of Chinese interference, a lot of uh, citing of CISA sources in the past. This one feels... A little bit different, though. Clearly, the government is already well aware that something has gone critically wrong here. They're not trying to backpedal on this one at all. No, they're not. And again, extraordinary meeting today, taking an opposition MP into a meeting with Trudeau and the two most senior security officials in the country to basically try to, to, to mop up and explain what went wrong. We still don't have those answers. And Mr. Chong has been promised those answers. And we're hoping to get them soon. But uh, as of yet, we don't know what happened to this warning and why they didn't think it was important enough to tell them about it until it was published in the Globe and Mail. A little bit of background here, because we'll remember the uh, the genocide vote that was uh, in the House of Commons, where I believe the Liberal cabinet abstained, but it passed otherwise. It passed uh, unanimously. Um, what 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 did you what have we gleaned from the information that you've been reporting about what was happening in the background uh, as far as the Chinese government was concerned? Well, the Chinese government, uh, there, was, there was quite a strong reaction to that vote. It was one, as you well know, it was one of the first votes among Western legislatures to condemn, um, to condemn the oppression there and to, and to say it constitutes genocide. That was, of course, followed by uh, votes in many legislatures around the world. And uh, there was an incredible pushback. We saw, uh, we've detected, we've seen a lot of phone calls from the consulate over that period of time. We've seen people um, from Chinese propaganda outfits uh, holding uh, conferences and attending conferences and trying to push back against the notion that something's going wrong in, in Xinjiang and suggesting that Canadian legislators have, legislators have, got, have got it wrong, that they're misinformed. So uh, there was a tremendous backlash 
to that vote, and Mr. Chong appears to have been caught up in it. We already, of course, know he was sanctioned by the Chinese government in March 2021, shortly after that vote, but we didn't know about this targeting. Right. And, and, and Mr. Chong, if, if I understand correctly, does have family back in Hong Kong that would have been presumably the targets of, of, this, of this operation. Absolutely. And he, he's told us when we first, uh, um, when I first went to him on Friday last week, he said he'd never, he had never been told about this. And he said that he had made a conscious decision not to talk to his family in Hong Kong since he was hit with sanctions by China in March 2021. So he hasn't talked to them in two years. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's hard to know where to begin on this one, isn't it, Stephen? And you've covered a lot of these stories over the years. Um, I guess what it boils down to now is that same old question we've been asking for months. Who knew what when, right? It is. And it's it's interesting. It's really struck a chord in the House today. The opposition parties all got up one by one and said they support Mr. Chong. Even the Liberal House Parliamentary Secretary to the House Leader got up. So everyone has clearly um, identified an egregious wrong, and the government is under pressure now to explain what happened. Yeah, I mean, Mr. Chong, for, for listeners who might not know, Michael Chong has, has a reputation as being a very straight shooter in all this and not particularly partisan. He has a great reputation in the House. He has a lot of respect in the House. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What now? I mean, I mean, clearly he's been made promises by the government, including by this, you know, the National Security Advisor and the head of CSIS, that there will be answers forthcoming. Um, is, the, is that the question to be asked now? He's going to be told where this might have fallen apart? Do they even know? Well, they told him, Jody Thomas told him they would, they would get answers right away to what happened. So you imagine what we have here is we have an intelligence assessment that was prepared. It's a nine-page document. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, where did it go? Did it go to the sixth floor of CSIS, the top floor? Did it get passed on to the public safety minister, who was Marco Mendicino at the time and still is Marco Mendicino? Or did it, did it, uh, did it go somewhere else? So what happened to this document? It, it made serious accusations, uh, or it, it raises serious questions about um, the safety of an MP and how come he wasn't told why isn't that within the mandate? The other extraordinary thing is today in the story, Mr. Vigneault says, I'm going to read to you from the very report the Globe quoted, because, right. and I'm authorized to do so because we believe there's a threat, there was a threat against your family and you. So the, the CSIS actually broke protocol today to talk to him about this. And just, just to get the timeline straight, this would have been unfolding several years ago at this point, right? I mean, this, the report would have, been, yeah. would have been put together in 2021, and the vote was also a few years ago. So this is 24-month-old this is news. Yes. and that not news. Or news problem. is the wrong word. Sorry, Stephen. News is the wrong term. This, is 24, this information's been sat on for 24 months. Yes, absolutely. In fact, the vote was February 2021. The report was July 2021. So, yeah, that, that is the egregious glaring problem here. Why does it take a newspaper report for the country's secret intelligence service to inform an MP of what they should have told them two years ago? Stephen Chase is or, with us, senior parliamentary. Or oh, go ahead, Stephen. Or, or was it the responsibility of Marco Medicino or the public safety minister? Somebody's responsible for this. I'm curious whose who's head they're going to put on a pike for this or whether they come up with an answer uh, that doesn't satisfy us. Stephen, one of the things that came up today that was, that was you know, clearly something that's on a lot of minds is what about the Chinese diplomat and all this, who's the allegations, Zhao Wei, who I gather is stationed in Toronto, or was at least. 
Yes, as far as we know, he still is. We've asked the Chinese embassy for comment three times in the last four days, and they haven't responded at all. But according to Canada's official list of accredited foreign representatives, he is still uh, listed as with that consulate there. He's been there for a few years. And it's not the first time he's turned up in our reporting. He's been, uh, we've mentioned him before, uh, in, as that CSIS con- con- considered him a, a, a likely uh, Chinese intelligence actor. So what now? I mean, you know, this is um, what kind of answer could we expect here other than, you know, I mean, there's only two real answers. It's either negligence, we, we, we forgot about it or didn't think it was important enough, or it, it was covered up. And, and neither one of those answers is particularly reassuring. I don't know if there's a third one. Could there be? I don't. I think I think you've spelled it out. The fact is, there is a report. It exists. It talks about this. Uh, the report says a Canadian MP, but a national security source told us it was, in fact, Mr. Chong and that the diplomat involved or the uh, the Chinese diplomat involved was Xiao Wei. But, um, and, of course, Mr. Uh, Vigneault has now confirmed this to Mr. Chong. So it's kind of locked in the facts. Now the question yeah. is, what do they do with the facts? And nobody seems to have a good sense of, uh, at least lay people, of who would have been responsible for informing him. It would have been CSIS, or it would have been the, the public safety minister to which CSIS reports, as far as we can tell. So now begins the process of the government explaining to us, hopefully, tomorrow, um, uh, who screwed up and how they're going to stop us from happening again. Of course, this all builds. Right now, we've got uh, David Johnson, the former governor general, trying to make a decision on whether there should be a public inquiry into foreign interference. And uh, this kind of adds fuel to that fire. Yeah, if the Liberals were were not worried about, thought that they might have put off any any judgment day on this until David Johnson uh, announced whether or not there should be a public inquiry, it feels like that time has suddenly sped up uh, in, in a big way with, with this particular story, because this is very, mm-hmm. a lot of the other stuff is very damning, but this is particularly egregious. Well, it shows that they can't even protect their own, right? The Parliament of Canada cannot even protect the people who are elected to sit in the, in the, in the uh see the government to make decisions, which is, uh, you know, it kind of uh, underlines the question about how much Canada is able to do to properly combat foreign interference. Yeah. I'm, when, you, when you look at, uh, I mean, we haven't, one of the big questions that keep coming up, and this came up before this example, is how come there has been no, no demand, at least, uh, to kick out certain diplomats who found to have been involved in this stuff? I know that there's always a tit-for-tat concern uh, that Canada's yeah. worried about having people kicked out of Beijing. But a- after a while, I mean, after a while. No, absolutely. You're right. And that, that's, that was the concern. You'll recall uh, back when the Russia began its all-out assault on Ukraine last year, Mr. Trudeau was asked, why don't you kick out, why do we need the Russian ambassador here? What good is it doing? And he said, well, we don't want to lose our presence in, in, in Moscow. We think that's an important source of information uh, for us. So um, you know, I suppose there's that consideration. But at the same time, uh, diplomats get kicked out all the time. There is a, a, an episode uh, people might not be familiar with in Canada, but in the United Kingdom, in Britain last year, uh, a Chinese diplomat in the Manchester consulate of the Chinese government uh, pulled a protester who was protesting the crackdown on Hong Kong, right. pulled them into the embassy, into the, onto the grounds of the embassy, and, and essentially assaulted them. And this official uh, just suddenly decided it was time to go home to China. So it was done in such a way that uh, China could save face, but the, it was uh, definitely uh, an expulsion, right, by Britain. 
Well, Stephen, as always, great reporting, and uh, we'll look forward to see. We're, I mean, this one again, it feels like it's moving very quickly. We look forward to seeing what comes next. Thanks so much for all the information tonight. Oh, you're welcome. Take care. We talked about this last night, of course, Gordon Lightfoot. The the announcement of his death um, happened just before we went to air last night. So we tried as we could to pay tribute to one of Canada's greatest singer-songwriters throughout the evening. And we'll continue to do so tonight. It feels like something worthwhile to do. There's been so many tributes paid to him today from all corners uh, of, of the world, including from some really respected artists. Neil Young came out today. Uh, Robbie Robertson of the band, of course. Brian Adams wrote a really touching tribute i mean it's been it's it's been a really interesting day to realize just how much and how respected gordon lightfoot was uh he felt like he had been performing for us for so long and with us and to us for so long uh that you kind of i guess one always thought maybe he would just stay be here forever and i I guess yesterday and today have been reminders that that's not true in the ontario city of aurelia uh that has long claimed gordon as its favorite son residents were mourning his death today at the age of mourning his death um with flowers left at the bronze sculpture of lightfoot that stands in a city park they were sharing their stories about him prime minister justin trudeau again there was lots of politics going on in the house of commons as we said uh in the last half, half hour but there was also a moment of silence a minute of silence to pay tribute to Gordon Lightfoot today. The Prime Minister says it was really sad to wake up this morning to the news that the Canadian icon had died. Trudeau says Lightfoot was one of Canada's greatest songwriters and an extraordinary Canadian icon. He loved this country with an incredible deep passion uh, and uh, was extraordinarily humble about it as well. I remember um, spending a little time with him a few years ago when he was playing for Canada's 150 on, uh, on Parliament Hill and was touched by his thoughtful grace and generosity. Yeah, Gordon Lightfoot was 84. It was often said, if you read about him, that he didn't care much for the magnifying glass that comes with fame. He loved to write songs. He loved to perform. He loved being a musician. He didn't necessarily like the scrutiny and the fame that comes with it. He shied away from reading stories about himself or listening to cover versions of his songs, apparently. But there are certainly exceptions, including his biography published in 2017 that he collaborated on extensively at times, if not reluctantly, with my next guest, journalist Nicholas Jennings. Uh, A longtime fan of Lightfoot's who'd first met him while working in catering at Massey Hall in Toronto, Uh, Jennings would write the liner notes for his 1999 box set called Songbook. The story goes that he later, Lightfoot, later told his manager to tell Jennings that if anyone was ever going to write a book about him, one that he wanted to read or authorize, that it would be him, that he felt he was someone he could trust. What followed uh, over time was nearly two dozen interviews that were many hours long between Jennings and Lightfoot. Uh, Jennings did extensive research, um, as well as speaking with friends and other musicians, filling in the gaps of his life story, um, and, and Lightfoot apparently was, you know, would waver on this a little bit. He wasn't always comfortable with this story being told necessarily, even though it was being told by someone who worked very closely with him. Um, Ultimately, they became friends. In fact, Jennings saw Lightfoot at his home in Toronto just last month before he left on a trip to Europe, hoping against hope that when he came back, he'd be able to see him again. Uh, We caught up with Nicholas Jennings, author of 2017's Lightfoot in Lisbon, in Portugal today. Uh, Nicholas, thank you so much for your time tonight. A tough day, a tough time for you, I'm sure. Yes, it has been. uh, I've been in Europe for uh, 
for three weeks. But uh, the day before I left, knowing that Gordon was in uh, a weakened state, um, I, I ventured up to his house and paid him a visit. And I sort of knew after seeing him, I hoped I hoped in my heart that he would pull through and I wished him, I told him I, I hoped that he did. I knew that he would because I said, you've been through a lot of health challenges and you've come through them, them fine. So I know you will this time. But in my heart of hearts, I, I kind of knew that uh, it, it was... I think he, he was so frail. I, I just, I, I, I think I knew in my heart of hearts that this would be the last time I'd see him. What did you talk about? Talked about his, his daughter, Meredith Moon, who is a singer songwriter herself, okay. just released an album. And I'd been to see her perform in Toronto. And I wanted to tell Gord how impressed I was by Meredith and uh, that I was going to do my best to spread the word about her, her new album. And he said, Thanks, Nick. Every little bit helps, he said, and he he gave me he gave me a grin. I said, I hope I hope uh, when I get back we'll be able to go out for for wife, uh, for for dinner with our wives as we've done before. Gordon, he he just sort of nodded and smiled, and and yet you know I I could see that he was uh, he, he was ha- he was having trouble. He was uh, you know he suffered from emphysema and it had taken its toll on him. He'd lost a lot of weight. It, it was hard to see, frankly. Yeah, and um, but but amazing that there he is still thinking about his daughter's career, like you know, sitting there thinking, still, oh. still, always the working musician, right? Never oh, not the working musician. Yeah, Pr- proud father. I mean, yeah. you know, he thought uh, so highly of his all of his children. He had six children by a number of different women, and he was he was very very uh, a devoted dad, and certainly trying to make up for lost time because, of course. In the seventies and eighties, he wasn't around a lot for his kids, and he that that uh, I think that just made him want to be a better better father uh, later in life, which he was. You've talked about that too. That that weighed. I mean, he was a man who 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 carried burdens heavily. Uh, I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but he was someone who took his burdens quite seriously. And you could tell from the way he wrote his music. You could tell from the way he talked about himself as well that uh, that he was not a person without regrets, right? And that I mean that made him all the more human, I think, to the rest of us. He had uh, a very deep sense of responsibility to his family, to his fans, to his his band members. I mean, he, uh, you know, he took all of these things on, like, with with a a great deal of gravitas. I admired that about him. I mean, I I learned so many things spending the, the time that I did with him and writing the biography. I mean, including that I think he was a very deeply moral person, um, Despite despite the uh, you know the 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 heavy the periods of heavy drinking and and affairs that he had during the height of his fame, he really regretted those and wanted to you know in his words redeem himself for those for those mistakes and uh, I can't I can't express really just how much that uh, how much he thought about that I mean he he was a incredible fretter I mean he fretted about. You know, have I got this guitar in tune? Um, right. Oh, have I, I remembered to call my son? You know, I mean, all these things weighed on him. And uh, and it, it always it amazed me at just how much he he, he was able to juggle his, all his personal demands and responsibilities with with his, his creative life. He must have trusted you an awful lot because you, the, the man you describe, I think, is the man that we all saw too, who was very comfortable on stage. He loved to be on stage. He would, he was happy to be photographed with his fans. He was a 
the consummate artist that you that you're not disappointed to meet. I would think at the same time he didn't love the attention, you know, the, no. the fame, so to speak, and being no. that being that that you know having to give the interviews and being asked the same questions again and again. Uh, he yes. must have really developed a very deep trust to share that much of his story with you. Well, I was I was honored that he asked me. You know, he said, well, "Why don't we do a book together?" And I was honored that he asked me. And then it was a, a, a rather interesting and sometimes frustrating um, uh, dance that he and I did for the next number of years because he kept getting cold feet about the idea of uh, a biography, um, you know, worrying that, oh, it was going to delve too deeply into some of the nooks and crannies. And, you know, he worried about what he referred to as the skeletons in his closet getting exposed. And I I can't tell you. He must he must have put the whole project on hold or on pause at least five five times over the course of ten years. And you know, my wife and my agent both said, Nick, you you'd be better off just walking away from this, you know. And 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 yet I felt I had so much material, and because I didn't feel that his story had ever been told properly, you know, the next time he called and said. Are we going to do this or not? You know, it's like, well, I've been waiting for you, Lord. And and uh, and then ultimately what happened is he, you know, in an incredible act of generosity, he just said, look, you've got enough material, Nick. Why don't you just go off and write it yourself? I don't need to be involved from here on. He'd given me complete access to, you know, his his friends, his family, uh, his, his bandmates, given me the, the basically the OK, it's OK to talk to Nick. And uh, and then shared, you know, his incredible uh, archive of photographs and and uh, and uh, memorabilia and and then didn't ask to see a single page of the manuscript before the book was published. And uh, I, I mean, I, I still can't believe it when I think about it, just how generous yeah. that was him. I've been told that he hadn't read many like, of the other biographies written about him, that he'd never read most of them. He didn't like reading about himself. He wasn't really interested in seeing his life down on paper, apparently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, he didn't. But, you know, I invited him to the book launch. Uh, yeah. My my publisher sent him a copy of the book the minute it was published. And uh, I had no idea what he thought of it. And then the night of the book launch, I didn't know whether he was going to show up or not. And then when he did... My wife spotted him coming through the door and said, he's here, he's here. Wow. And I, I went over to greet him at the door, extended my hand to thank him for coming. And the first thing he said was, well, I finished it. <laughs> wow. and I said, and, and, and he said, it's a real page turner. You did a good job. And I thought, oh my God. That oh, is that's crazy. high praise from him. From, yeah. from a man of a few words like Gordon Lightfoot. So I, uh, I was, I was over the moon with that. And, and it, it was Ultimately, uh, I think, you know, I, I, I realized that to tell his story properly, I had to I had to sh show his 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 life in and his work in context. I, I could not gloss it over. I had to sort of deal with what he calls the darker chapters, the dark episodes and uh, and and wart, warts and all, if you like. And, yeah. and I think I think he realized that. I think he ultimately he, so he didn't come back and say, why the hell did you have to put that in? He just realized, OK, this was this was the this this this, this is what I gave Nick the opportunity to do. And he's done the best he, he, he could with it. And uh, and that, you know, for, as I say, I'm forever grateful that he uh, 
he trusted me. Nicholas, you sat down. I mean, he thought it was a page turner, so that must be a good sign. But what was it about his story that as you dove into it? Because because I know you you'd met him. I mean, you knew him fairly well. You loved you loved his music. There was a lot you already knew, but then you you dove in and told a story about his life so that we would better understand this complicated genius enveloped in this humility that was Gordon Lightfoot. And what did you walk away with? What what did you learn and what did we learn about him through that whole experience that we should be remembering today? Well, that I think, you know, um, on the surface, he was a very simple man, um, you know, a small, small town boy from Aurelia who grew up with a, you know, with a strong work ethic that he inherited from his father who ran the, the local dry cleaning business in Aurelia. On the surface, kind of a simple a simple man, but you know, as as I got to know him and as I delved deeper into it, I realized just that it was there was unbelievable levels of of complexity to his life and to his uh, to his his personality. The man he, who who he was 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 not what he appeared on the surface. Gordon Lightfoot fans across Canada, all around the world, who absolutely love his his songs, know that. He's a man of of some complexity because of the nature of his songs. His songs cover themes of of you know I mean a remarkable range. You know over five hundred songs. There are you know historical epics like uh, the Wreck of the Emma Fitzgerald, of course, Canadian Railroad trilogy. But there are deeply romantic ballads. I mean songs that um, that he wrote from a deeply personal place, and and yet somehow found a way to make them accessible and and meaningful to people from all walks of life. So that's really, <laughs> you know, about as as uh, great an achievement as as uh, one one you know any artist could make is is that you reach the number of people with your art that Gordon Lightfoot did. You know, he had in 1974 the biggest single song uh, and the biggest single album in the world in Sundown number one around the world. And you can just imagine in those days when record sales were as huge as they were, just what that meant to a career. And and in Gordon Lightfoot's case, he was touring the world. He was playing the biggest stages everywhere. I, I became a bit of an obsessive Lightfoot collector. And I, I, I've picked up over the years records that have been basically released in Japan in Spain, you know, in in Germany and Holland, you know, so you see these these songs that we all know, and they're the titles on the sleeves are written in the language of those countries because that's how big he was. Those songs, you know, were hits. Universal, yeah, they were. Considering how Canadian we consider them, perhaps not some of the some of the bigger. I mean, the record of Edmund Fitzgerald is about as well. I guess it's about as Great Lakes as it gets. Um, yeah. How did he see himself in that in that way? Because he was he was always touted as being this sort of Canadian poet laureate and this troubadour of ours. Uh, did he see himself the same way? Well, I mean, he was deeply, deeply proud of his Canadian heritage. Um, you know, he he loved Canada. And yet, you know, he spent probably more time touring in the U.S. than he did in Canada. If you add up the tour dates over the years and, you know, his his number of appearances, you know, started to taper off in the last few years. Understandably, the guy's in his eight, was in his eighties, but um, you know, he 
at the peak was doing hundreds of shows, you know, many of them in the U.S., playing in cities and, and towns all across the America. And, you know, that that uh, is also surprising. You know, as Canadian as he is, he was beloved, you know, far and wide. I mean, and, and probably no, 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 nowhere more so than the U.S., you know, so it's funny that despite his Cana- the Canadianness of his songs, uh, Americans love those hits. They love songs like "Beautiful" and they love songs like you know "Pussy Willow's Cattails." It, it didn't matter to them that it was written about the countryside where he grew up in 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 Aurelia. You know, to them it just it just was a beautiful song about being out, out in the outdoors, you know, um, and being one with nature. We're gonna uh, miss him. We're gonna miss him. We're going to miss him hugely. You know, I don't I don't know, frankly, if there'll, there'll be another like Gordon Lightfoot, really, um, because he he devoted himself to the craft. You know, he was I, I once I once I once used the phrase master craftsman of song. I mean, he he that's he, that, that was his calling. And that's what he devoted himself to. And I don't think, you know, anyone has has achieved um, a better a, a better level of of uh, success in that craft than than Gordon Lightfoot. Well, Nicholas Jennings, uh, you wrote the book on Gordon Lightfoot, so thank you so much for sharing your time with me tonight, and my condolences to you as well. I know it's tough. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thought a lot about all the tributes today that were paid to Gordon Lightfoot. Of course, we were just about to go to air last night when news of his passing at the age of eighty four in Toronto was released. And there have been some really, really wonderful tributes uh, to him today. Um, Robbie Robertson, of course, the band said, rainy day people all know there's no sorrow. They can't rise above Gordon Lightfoot, heartbroken to learn the loss of a Canadian legend, sending love and comfort to his loved ones during this tough time. Rest in peace, Gordon. Uh, Brian Adams wrote a really touching one as well. This one is really hard to write. He wrote, once in a blue moon, you get to work and hang out with one of the people you admired when you were growing up. I was lucky enough to say Gordon was my friend, and I'm gutted to know he's gone. The world is a lesser place without him. I know I speak for all Canadians when I say thank you for the songs, Gordon Lightfoot. Bless your sweet songwriting heart. RIP, dear friend. And that was signed by Brian Adams. A really interesting one. And Murray, of course, uh, you know, she was having a lot of success in uh, on the charts and in the U.S. specifically, right about the same time that Gordon Lightfoot was, uh, she, her career of course continued as does his, but back in the uh, in the early 70s, 73, 74, uh, she said, and Murray of course carried many tunes over her singing career, but she says the lyrical quality of Gordon Lightfoot, uh, his songs rose above most others. Uh, she was recalling her memories of Lightfoot, who died, of course, at the age of eighty four. She says Lightfoot's road warrior spirit became a topic of conversation when they both shared a table at Canada's Walk of Fame ceremony. Somebody said, you know, how much longer are you going to do this? And, uh, and I said, well, I'm not. He said, oh, we got to keep going, don't we, Anne? And I went, no, Gordon, I don't think so. What he wanted to do was perform until he couldn't. And he certainly did. Um, Randy Bachman who just lost his brother as well, wrote a really nice tribute. He said, when we were younger, Burton Cummings and I went to a Gordon Lightfoot concert. We sat there mesmerized the entire time at the way he sang and the stories his lyrics told. Poetry, folklore, and music. Spellbound would be a good way to describe it. Love to his family and friends today at his passing. I knew him a long time. He was a wonderful person.
Well, let's rewind now about 49 years back to those heady days of 1974, because not only was Randy Bachman all over the charts with Bachman-Turner Overdrive, Terry Jacks, also from Winnipeg, had had a huge hit that year with Seasons in the Sun. So did Gordon Lightfoot, of course, with Sundown, his one and only number one in the U.S. And my next guest, just three months after Gordon Lightfoot was at number one, he was at number one with his biggest hit under his own name uh, back in 1974. In fact, Andy Kim, again, would top the charts only three months after uh, after Lightfoot did with his song, Rock Me Gently, a song you may remember. Now, the two artists would cross paths, as Canadian artists are wont to do many times over the years, particularly after Kim started his Andy Kim Christmas show uh, at Massey Hall, a live annual event that supports Toronto charities. Uh, Andy is, of course, the man behind such hits as Rock Me Gently, Baby I Love You, and perhaps the song that we all know because he co-wrote it, <laughs> Sugar Sugar, uh, technically by the Archies, but really by Andy Kim. And he joins me now from Toronto. Andy, it's a real pleasure. Thank you so much. You know, an honor to be talking to you. Music was such an important part of my my youth growing up and so on. And there's songs that I that I that I loved when I was young and carried with me uh for a long time, including Sugar Sugar, I was mentioning just before we started. Gordon Lightfoot had songs that you really liked when you were young growing up in Montreal. What did his music how did his music speak to you when you were sort of hitting that that pinnacle age where you thought, maybe I'll do this for a living? Well, you know what? It kind of was beyond me. You know, I I, I knew that that he was artistic and I knew that he wrote this great songs, not unlike Leonard Cohen. I'm not comparing either, right. but they went to college and I've been lucky to, to continue to, uh, to love learning and the, the ability to write. But Gordon had that magical thing about him. You met him. You, you tell a great story about meeting him at O'Hare Airport, uh, two Canadians bumping into each other in Chicago. And uh, this was sort of a, a big moment for you because you had your, I guess you had your first top 40 hit at the time. Yeah, well, I, it, it was my first tour and, and, and I saw him at the airport and I had to muster up the courage to go to him. And then I started blabbing, you know, telling him I'm, you know, born and raised in Montreal and and my song had just you know, hit the billboard charts and I have all his albums and, and I wanted to meet him. It just was, I just, when, when I think back on it, I was just like, um, I just kind of fumbled my words and just couldn't believe that I was actually shaking his hand and talking to him. He didn't say anything throughout my moment of of (laughs) just, yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a great word, you know, and so I thanked him for his time. And then I said, you have any um, advice for me? And he said, well, make sure you get paid in Canadian dollars. For those who were not around in 1968, the Canadian dollar was worth a dollar five compared to the U.S. It was a sound business thought, but I had someone taking care of uh, my money in uh, the U.S. And, and that's where it stayed. But it was sound advice, you know. Yeah. Fast forward a few years, though, I was looking this up today, and 1974 was a really successful year for Canadian artists in the U.S. You and he had number one hits three months apart. His only number one, your big hit, Rock Me Gently, were number one very close to each other. What a moment for Canadian artists. Did you think much about about sort of being Canadian when that success was happening? And also, of course, uh, Gordon had just had his biggest hit just a few months earlier. Yeah, you know what? Here's what's interesting to me. What's interesting is that, you know, growing up in Montreal, there was no 
seen the way Toronto had its scene. So the only thing that I dreamt about was that when I got my one of my brother's transistor radio and I got WABC in New York and WKBW in Buffalo, that became my world. But knowing that that Gordon just loved songwriting and and he would he would work for weeks on a a lyric and 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 really kind of make it into exactly what he wanted to say at all times. You know, Sugar Sugar was 10 minutes, Rock Me Gently was probably 15 minutes. These things came to me and it's what that was and and so um I've been in the audience just listening to Gordon. I knew that every word was precious. I knew he thought about it and he played it that way. And it was, it was, it was a painting. What a talent, what a man, what a, what an insight into his own world. Uh, but, but as time went on and your careers evolved and changed and there were successes and, 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 and times that were more fallow and so forth, you, you reconnected later on and, and you did start that, that Andy Kim Christmas show, which has been a huge success. And I was looking back at a 2015 one when, uh, when Gordon played it. And I'm not sure how many times he played, but he, he, he turned up for you for those, for those events. Truth be known is that as, as many times as I've asked him, he would come to the show. But he, he didn't get on stage and perform at our show. He would, right. during his Massey Hall, last Massey Hall shows, he talked about the Christmas show. And he kind of gave it a plug and, and all of that. But look, I would tell him, look, you can, if you walk on stage and just tune your guitar, the audience would love it. And, and when I started playing Massey Hall, obviously, the, the bow is that it's, this is Gordon's room. This yeah. is Gordon's place. The fact that, that he showed up for my shows, you know, his, his ability to, to capture not only an audience, but he would come to the shows. I'd see him sitting in the middle. He'd come backstage at the beginning of our first intermission. And everybody, all the artists that were there, like, you freeze. And before you know it, Everyone's begging for a picture. Everyone's begging for an autograph. And my friend Ron Sexsmith and I, about 20 years ago, started going to see him whenever we can together. And we did that pilgrimage, you know, to see Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah, I was seeing that Ron Sexsmith's actually touring in Ireland uh, right now. And he, he, paid, uh, he dedicated the rest of his tour to Gordon's memory. So the two of you were, were fans together, which is, uh, you, you mentioned something really interesting about songs. And I thought of you and I thought of, Gordon Lightfoot as well as that when you write a song and I've heard other artists say this when, when you write a song and it becomes really popular it doesn't belong to you mentioned it earlier even it doesn't belong to you anymore and I feel like as a songwriter that must be an interesting experience that both you and Gordon Lightfoot ex went through where you write something and then it takes on a life of its own and it becomes part of the lexicon right it becomes part of, of something much bigger than you something that will outlive you as well it's really kind of a surreal moment when your song is on the radio. It's a surreal moment when, when it really becomes bigger than you are. You know, and people ask me all the time, so, so why did you write Sugar Sugar and how did you write it? And, and all, I don't know. I, for myself, I don't know. I didn't agonize over, over, you know, 
rhyming sugar with sugar and honey with honey. It just right. came. It's the kind of songwriter I am. There are some songs that, that I take my time with because that's what the song needs. But I think with Gordon, it was always a painting and there was always a, he'd step back from the canvas and he'd see that maybe that color over here needed to be a little stronger, you know? And then you give it up, you put it out there and you, and you hope that, that, you know, people like it because it gives you the opportunity to do it again. You said something interesting today about recognizing that Gordon Lightfoot always recognized that artists of, of all stripes walk the same path together. And I was interested about what, what, uh, what you thought, what, what was behind that? No matter what it is, whether, you, whether you've had a hit or you, ha- you haven't had a hit, if you have a feeling about not only are you an artist, but you recognize that other artists who may not write the way you write, who may write hip-hop, or maybe they, they write strictly um, songs that, that are, are different from what you're writing, you know that their heart is there, and that road is the same road that we all take. And some people forget that. Some people think just because they've had a hit, and I've known those artists, that they think they're bigger than their flesh and blood. I think luck has a lot to do with I think in, in inherent talent has to do with it. But it comes down to an audience accepting your music. It's really kind of a question inside of me as to why certain artists take the stand that, you know, they can't talk to someone else that's just starting. And I've always felt that Gordon understood it all. And that's why he understood that we all take that road together. Yeah. And you both continued. I mean, you you continue to play now. Uh, he played right up until, you know, you both have been spent all your heartbeats more or less doing this for a living. It must bring it must bring some satisfaction. It must bring real satisfaction. Yeah, you know what? I, I heard something a while ago that, that, you know, I'm one of those guys that I hear something, I write it down. And to be a songwriter is not a safe place. To expect people to like your music is not a safe place. You have to deliver every time. And some, some people can deliver it once. Some people like Gordon can deliver it most of the time. But the bottom line for me, and I think, I think Gordon felt this way too, is something that I heard a while ago. What are you doing with your one and only life? Your being, and when I think of Gordon, I think he understood that inherently, and he gave everything to understanding, hey, this is my one and only life. I had a chance with Ron to go see him uh, when Massey Hall opened, and my Christmas show was gonna be at Massey Hall three days later. But he's doing, you know, multiple shows and and so we went to the opening and and even though he had some kind of attachment because he had had a a problem with his wrist and this in his forearm and um and he played the guitar like he'd never played it before it was just incredible and he was singing although you could tell that he was not physically 100 percent, but he was there those were his heartbeats that he was giving to his songs and to the audience that showed up. And for the 20 years that Ron and I have had our pilgrimage going to see Gordon, it's been beyond sellout. And he walks out and he doesn't, he doesn't just throw it away or expect the audience just 
to love him at half speed. It was always 150%. And to me, to me that, that's inspiring. That's a beautiful way to, to understand your life, to understand the fact that, you know, there's the give and take of feeling great and not having the, the health that you want to have, you know. But, but he stood there and, and, and delivered for, uh, for all of us to listen. And for himself, I would presume. Well, Andy Kim, thank you so much. You know I'm a big fan, so thanks so much for your time today and your, uh, and your unique insight into Gordon Lightfoot. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. And so when the day comes when I'm gone, hopefully you'll have someone else talking about me. Let's fast forward to a legal fight being waged by one of his British contemporaries, another very popular singer-songwriter. At just 32, Ed Sheeran is the best-selling male artist of the last decade with a string of monster hits, songs I'm sure you've heard somewhere, somehow, sometime, including Shape of You, Perfect, and Thinking Out Loud. And it's the last one uh, that has him playing for a different kind of audience these days, a jury in a Manhattan courtroom over accusations that he stole material for that song from Marvin Gaye's 1973 hit. Keep in mind, this was made decades before he was born. From Marvin Gaye's 1973 number one hit, Let's Get It On. Sheeran returned to the witness stand in New York Monday. He's being sued by the family of Gay's co-writer, Ed Townsend. They say Sheeran's song, Darling, I will be loving you. Thinking Out Loud is a ripoff of Let's Get It On. Sheeran brought out his guitar to show how songs can be mashed up because they have similar chords. During opening statements, Townsend, a state attorney, said a concert clip of Sheeran segueing between the two songs amounted to smoking gun proof. Sheeran said he uses mashups to spice up concerts and couldn't believe somebody would listen to one of his songs and diminish it by saying, I stole it. He added, I find it really insulting. Julie Walker, New York. So just how similar they are, well, a jury will decide that, ultimately. Uh, But we wanted to ask a forensic musicologist. These things exist. Uh, Joe Bennett is a professor at the Berklee College of Music in Boston. He is a forensic musicologist, and he served as an expert witness in cases just like this one, but not this one. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for your time tonight. Good to speak to you. Every time this pops up, these cases get so much attention, I think, because people are so familiar with the songs. I mean, especially these two. I mean, these two are both massive hits. Uh, So just to start at the beginning, do you think this is a case of copyright infringement? This is absolutely not a case of copyright infringement. Nothing could be further from the truth. These songs sound similar for an absolutely innocent reason that they similar chord sequence. That is very familiar to pretty much any songwriter. What's kind of concerning about it is that it could go either way. Some songs share a chord loop, and uh, that's kind of common knowledge in the songwriting community. Yeah, I mean, pop songs, um, you know, there, there are only so many chords. I mean, all, there's only so many ways to, make, to bake the same cake, so to speak. When you look at this one, though, I mean, Ed Sheeran clearly has been in court before when it comes to these sorts of things. Where does, where does is the line drawn for, for an artist or an estate such as Marvin Gaye's, who obviously had that big uh, case with Blurred Lines and, uh, and Gotta Give It Up uh, many, a few years back? Where does the decision to go ahead with a case like this, how does that happen? 
Yeah, well, spurious lawsuits are filed all the time in America, as, as we know, and it's, it's a fairly easy thing for anyone to file the initial complaint for any potential plaintiff to say, I think you copied my song. They just need a few hundred dollars and a compliant lawyer. A lot of cases like this get dismissed because they have no substance. And, of course, that means that the public rarely hears about them. You know, in my consultancy life, I see a ton of these where there are, frankly, crazy accusations of copying due to a simple commonplace element. Like this morning I was working on a four-note bass line. One hip-hop person had said, you copied my four-note bass line. And right. it was such a simple gesture that it was easily possible that two people could have come up with it independently. And, of course, I just came up with a ton of examples that demonstrated that. So in terms of where the threshold is, well, what the musicologists for the plaintiff will need to show is that not only is the similarity so significant that the only explanation for it is copying, but also they will need to show that the thing being allegedly copied is unique in the history of all music, which is what you need to achieve to file a copyright with something. Normally with the more recognisable aspects of a song, that is the top line melody and the lyric, those things can be unique actually quite easily. Certainly in the case of melody, any melody with rhythmic values over a period of bars is likely to be unique in the history of all music. Um, so what these cases are often about is fragments. People go after like, in this case, two bars of simple chords or a, a one bar pentatonic melodic lick, things that appear in music as small building blocks of the song and that until recently songwriters just felt they could use freely because they're kind of available to everyone. And I think that's why this case is so concerning for many in the songwriting community because if the plaintiffs prevail here, then that chord sequence, the chord sequence of thinking out loud of chord one, three, four, and five built on triads of the major scale played in that particular way of anticipating the middle of the bar, that would be off limits to other songwriters. That would be copyright Marvin Gaye and Ed Townsend. And that would be kind of worrying. And certainly that is the argument that the defense is making. Right. And, and did you, you have examples of this because you pointed out that this is not by in, in any way, uh, even let's get it on is not an original. Uh, you know, that part of the song is not particularly original. I mean, let's get it on is an incredibly is it a distinct song and easy to pick out the moment you hear the opening bars. But you, you've pointed out and you've played it that these this is actually quite a common way of doing things. Yes, absolutely. Now, to be clear, you know, my personal artistic view, I believe that Let's Get It On is a classic. That's uh, oh, a great song. It's a great yeah, song. It, it's yeah. a great song. And, and similarly, Thinking Out Loud, it won a Grammy. It's a fantastic song. Yeah. But they are separate and distinct songs that happen to have a similar backing track. So let's just get briefly into the music theory. I'm going to sure. grab a guitar here and I'll just give, give you a bit of background. So... I'm going to play both songs in the key of D. They're actually in different keys, but to hear the similarities and differences. So um, let's get it on is the following chords. D, F sharp minor, G, and A. And played with this rhythm. 
So that's your two-bar loop. Right. Thinking out loud is the very similar chords. It's D, then D over F sharp. So the second chord is slightly dissimilar than G and A. And it sounds like this. So when performed at a sort of 80 BPM-ish tempo, sort of slow-ish ballad, the bass lines are likely to sync up. I get it, aha. And so even notwithstanding the fact that the second chord of the loop is not actually the same, if Ed Sheeran has copied from Marvin Gaye, he hasn't done it very accurately, shall we say. <laughs> Uh, but let's let's take a listen to let's get on. I'm going to play you just a four bar section. So we're going to sure. hear that two bar loop twice. Sure. Here it is. I've been really trying, trying to hold back for so long. Here is thinking out loud. Darling, I will be loving you. So fairly obviously, um, especially when I play them back at the same tempo in the same key, everyone can hear the subjective similarities. Yeah, subjective being the operative word. So, I mean, to the name, I suppose even to a juror, perhaps these might sound alike. But you've been very clear as to, and you've explained already as to why they're actually not only fairly dissimilar, uh, but also very common. And you say often the question shouldn't be whether song B sounds a lot like song A, but just how original song A was in the first place. Absolutely. And um, in a case like this, a musicologist will do a thing called a prior art search. Mm-hmm. And that means they will find just how common the the musical object, in this case, the four chord loop, they'll find out just how common that is in music. So to go way back, let's go back to before thinking out loud. So let's just play two bars of Let's Get It On, familiarize ourselves with the loop. Now, that loop is actually the same as the 1967 song that predates Let's Get It On. Georgie Girl by The Seekers. Okay. Now, it will sound completely different, but it's the same chords. Here's Georgie Girl. Okay. I know that song. I mean, it's faster, and of course, I could digitally manipulate it. Let's do it. This will be a tough lesson. We could play Georgie Girl at Thinking Out Loud, and let's get it on tempo. Here it is. It's going to be a bit grungy. Yeah, uh-huh. Well, then now that makes it, it as a as a non musician that now makes perfect sense as to what you're trying to to put across here is that. The, the song itself is not built on a particularly unique foundation, right? Well, right. And of course, in music law, in copyright law, you have two copyrights. You have the song, mm-hmm. the musical work, as the lawyers call it, and the sound recording or the uh, the record, as the public calls it. So obviously it's possible to play Georgie Girl at 80 beats per minute and it still be recognizable. Um, so fundamentally it's the same musical building block, but let's do another slow jam example actually that's more in the vein of let's get it on. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, I'll just give you a tiny bit of let's get it on first. 
is to remind ourselves. And here is Van Morrison from 1989. Have I told you lately? So it's the same loop, slightly different. Interesting, because when you play all those songs to to the to the you know to the non-educated ear you wouldn't think any of them were similar. I mean, you can see slight similarities between Ed Sheeran and Marvin Gaye a little bit, but really, not really. Uh, it, it, how interesting. Well, that's because we hear the arrangement and the production, mm-hmm. which are normally not considered to be part of the copyright, certainly not in an early 70s work where the copyright subsists within its sheet music uh, because of the law at the time. Um, so, yeah, when you hear Have I Told You Lately, it sounds different, but only because it has, like, swooping strings in there. Right, okay. It doesn't have, like, a wah-wah pedal on the guitar that you do <laughs> In, that you have in Let's Get It On. So, but those surface elements of production, they're just on the record. They're not part of the song. It's still, you know, you could play Have I Told You Lately on a an accordion and it would still be recognisable. It'd still be the same song. Once one has got one's head around that idea that strip away the surface and listen for the song beneath, then with something as simple as this, when we're talking about a simple one three, four, five, ascending diatonic chord pattern, you start to find it everywhere. So here, for example, is Garth Brooks. He loves this chord sequence. This is his song, Wolves. Charlie Martin and his family Stopped today to say goodbye now I think that sounds like "Have I Told You Told You Lately" by Van Morrison. <laughs> now that you've played it that way, it's it's. You're, I mean, you've, you've certainly proven the point of, of of why of why this is a complicated case. Do you have any any guessing on where this is going to go? I mean, I guess we don't. It's in it's in the hands of a jury, so we don't know what's going to happen in this particular Ed Sheeran case. Uh, yeah, and I think one of the concerns about the U.S. system is that it uses juries. What that means is that. It, it kind of could go either way. If it were tried in any other country or most other countries, they would just be the judge and the experts and the lawyers, and they they would figure it out and the judge would make a decision. But the problem with the U.S. system is that when juries are involved, that helps the plaintiff because jurors can't strip out unprotectable elements in their head and identify only unique elements. You know, they're not songwriters, they're not copyright lawyers, they're not musicologists. So they need guidance on that stuff in the courtroom. And all too often, the journalist on the web piece will sign off by saying, so, hey, everyone, what do you think? Here are the two YouTube embeds. Right. You think it's copying? And that encourages people to ask the rather trapping question of uh, you know how similar are these things whereas what the court will need to do is to strip out the unprotectable elements and listen only to the elements that are unique to let's get it on and presumably protected by copyright now in my view this chord sequence is not unique to let's get it on and the defendant's musicologist in that case has already filed with the court lists of dozens of songs that use this chord sequence in a similar way. I think sanity's going to prevail here, 
but we're watching this with great interest. Well, Joe Bennett, thank you so much for uh, for essentially taking us inside a courtroom on this one. That was fascinating. I appreciate it. Thanks. We've been paying tribute tonight to Gordon Lightfoot, of course. Um, we talked about him on the show last night, but it happened just before the show began. Uh, and we're talking about him again tonight because there's been such a outpouring of uh, condolences, sympathy, admiration, you name it, you name it. Tonight at the... Uh, at the Maple Leafs game. You'll remember that we uh, interviewed Jimmy Holmstrom, the organist at uh, Maple Leafs home games. He has been for the past 35 years. Uh, we know that Gordon Lightfoot was a big Maple Leafs fan, so Holmstrom played sundown on the organ tonight uh, before the game with the Florida Panthers. They lost uh, 4-2 to to Florida tonight. Edmonton, of course, the other Canadian Cup hopeful, hoping to end that 30-year 30 30-year Cup drought in this country. The Oilers are in uh, Las Vegas to play the Knights in game one of their second round series tomorrow night. You can hear that game on uh, 6.30 chat, of course, as you can hear all Edmonton Oilers games. We'll be following along, hoping for one of the Canadian teams to advance, um, you know, a Canadian Cup. I remember the last one back in 1993. It was such a big deal. It'd be nice to see a Canadian team win another one. Last hour, we spoke to Canadian singer-songwriter, speaking of Montreal, uh, Andy Kim, about songwriting and finding success. It was no easy feat, but he studied with the best at the famous Brill Building in New York, where Carol King and Jeff Goff and Barry Mann all churned out hits like Stand By Me and He's So Fine and You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Gordon Lightfoot came from a very different school of music, part of that Yorkville scene, that folk scene in Toronto in the 60s. Folk icons such as the Weavers and Ian Tyson and Sylvia Tyson, Bob Gibson, of course, Bob Dylan were his heroes, were his inspiration. He also spoke of being influenced to write better songs by the works of the best out there at the time, like Lennon and McCartney when the Beatles album Revolver came out, that he pushed himself always to write better songs, that his philosophy to songwriting in some ways was to create art, that he painted masterpieces uh, with music. And, you know, someone was comparing him to a member of the Group of Seven uh, today. That's how seriously he took songwriting. And oftentimes songs written like that don't find popular success necessarily. And yet he covered such a wide gamut of styles. Um, you know, he would do I mean, he composed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs, uh, historical epics that we know about, romantic ballads, sea shanties, county, country ditties, folk-style protest songs, and uh, bluesy toe-tappers, he would call them. In his biography, Nick Jennings writes, many became hits, many more are considered iconic, as quintessentially Canadian as a group of seven painting or an Alice Monroe short story. He would admit that he had absolutely no idea that his masterpieces, if you could read my mind, and the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald would become hits because he didn't write them necessarily to be hits. And that is an approach to pop music that very much differs from, say, the formulaic nature that we often see. You know, you, you, you read stories. I'm trying to think of a good example of the 80s, for instance, when or 80s and early 90s when Stock Aikman Waterman in England churned out just manufactured hits for artists like Rick Astley and Kylie Minogue and Dead or Alive, uh, Mel and Kim, and the songs, Jason uh, uh, Jason Donovan, the songs all sounded very similar because there was a formula to the hits. Well, in Gordon Lightfoot's case, there wasn't. He wrote what he felt like writing. They were all great songs, but he kind of wrote what he felt like writing, and that is unique to him in some ways. He's not alone, but it certainly made him special in the pop world. And yet he had these big pop hits. So we thought we'd try and find out what that meant in the history of pop music. Norma Coates 
is a professor in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies and an expert in popular music, past and present. She's originally from Boston, but now is at Western University in London, Ontario, and of course, has fully immersed herself in the history uh, and legacy of uh, Gordon Lightfoot. Norma Coates, thank you. Well, thank you. I guess the, just the reaction, what do you make of, of, of the outpouring of, of condolences for Gordon Lightfoot, but also from some of the greatest names in music? I mean, clearly he occupied a space in the Pantheon um, that I think we, a lot of us understood, but maybe didn't fully recognize. Well, I think musicians uh, always have kind of extra knowledge about who they love, you know, especially if you're a singer songwriter, you're going to be getting the influence by people who have gone before you. And I think that uh, Lightfoot just had enormous influence on many, many people working in music now and, and before, you know, during his, uh, during his time on earth here. So, you know, he, he's an incredible storyteller, something like the, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which I remember hearing when I was a high school student and starting to get into punk rock and thinking yeah. about anything softer. You know, that was an amazing story that hooked me in with that riff that he had going throughout the song. And just the story just made me feel like I was there. And you were in Boston at this point. You were, I, I mean, this, you were a long way from Lake Superior at the, right, at the time. Right. I mean, I've since seen Lake Superior and, you know, I was up there looking at it. I remember being on it. I remember thinking, wow, you know, Edmund Fitzgerald. And he made that song, you know, which was about uh, something that happened a year before he wrote it. He made it sound like it was, you know, ancient. And it is. In a way, the story he was telling was ancient because I'm sure the Edmund Fitzgerald wasn't the first ship of any type to go down on Lake Superior. But he no. also did it in such a way that was so engaging and so moving and again you could almost feel like you could imagine that happening uh he brought you to the boat yeah and it's a rarity i mean you, you know pop music it's a rarity in, in in popular music at least uh for that level that that i mean he was a, he was a, a very uh concise historian as well he yes. took it very seriously and it shines through you when you hear it you realize that every word was chosen in order to tell the story perfectly in that fitting into that time frame he said he read every newspaper he could about it in order. And I know that 50 years ago, you didn't, you couldn't just immediately go to an archive uh, on ProQuest or some search database and get everything you needed on it. So he had to put effort into writing that song and to getting all the sources that he needed for it. So, and, and to hear it, you know, it sounds so, it sounds so historically uh, accurate and still relevant. I hear in his music, a lot of the, that relevancy remains. Pierre Burton, the author, I mean, who's written many, sort of the, the, one of Canada's primary historians, once said that his railway trilogy was actually as concise as his books, which it, which is which is a compliment in itself. Um, what was, I've learned what, a lot from hearing that. Yeah, you t you said in moving to Canada that yeah. you learned a lot about Canada from Gordon Lightfoot. Absolutely. Uh, yes, I, I came from the U.S. eighteen years ago, and yeah, I knew his hits down there, but I didn't really hear Canada in it because I didn't know to listen for it. But as soon as I got here, it's like, yeah, he's talking about, you know, this area I live in, some of the beautiful areas around it, its history. Yeah, I think I probably learned as much from him as I learned from, you know, other sources that I've tried to learn about Canadian history. What was yeah. what was his legacy in the U? I mean, how was he viewed in the U.S.? Because you mentioned earlier that you were struck by uh, – the, uni the uniqueness of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and, and he had other hits as well. Uh, he sort of fit into a bit of a category that existed in the U.S. at the time, sort of the singer-songwriter, yeah. um, softer stuff. But 
his music, if you listen to the lyrics, it it wasn't particularly soft. It was always quite heart wrenching. Yes, heart wrenching and and very honest, very emotionally honest. Plus, I was only a teenager then, and his songs would get stuck on like adult-oriented radio or soft rock radio, even though I don't think he necessarily deserved to be there. His stuff is might be pleasant to listen to, but it certainly has a lot more oomph to it, I think, than a lot of uh, soft rock. Oomph is a technical term, obviously. Yes. Um, yeah, I remember when Sundown was his big hit, mm-hmm. radio hit at the time, when I was uh, 17, 18 years old. And I remember thinking, eh, now I'm like, oh, gosh. I was like that with a lot of music now that I go back and go, oh, I was an idiot. <laughs> but he was on the radio a lot, but stuck into formats, which in the U.S. kind of dictates everything. And if you're listening to the radio for a certain format, you're not going to hear anything else. you know. And you're not really going to get the context about what's going on with it either. I guess that was one of the that's one of the troubles sometimes with format is that artists who don't really fall into any particular format wind up being stuck in one. And then yep. that sort of taint, not taints, but it, it dictates. I mean, I remember growing up, you know, in the seventies and, you know, my dad was, we, we, there were there's lots of punk and the Ramones and the clash yep. and so on. We didn't hear a lot of, of Gordon Lightfoot at home, right. unfortunately, because he was, he was categorized in a certain way, maybe unfortunately for, uh, for his legacy, although his legacy seems to be, very rich, but it's funny it didn't shine through as much at the time that he was so loved and adored by his by his fellow songwriters. Absolutely. And again, they know. They know. I mean, I have a friend who's a singer-songwriter, and she's turned me on to a lot of things that I used to poo-poo. And she's an old punk, too. So, you know, also you get older, your taste, your taste changes. But in the U.S., he was just this radio guy. I'm not even sure I knew he was Canadian at that point. But you know, his big songs got out there. The, the other thing that really uh, I, I didn't quite realize is how much his songs have been covered by others. Yeah. Uh, Early Morning Rain. Oh, my gosh. You know, I, I've heard that. I mean, I've heard a lot of his songs for my life, not knowing they were his songs. And, um, and another thing I really like about him is that he did. He stayed here. You know, you think of the, uh, God, you know, to be on Yorkville Ave in 1965 would have been amazing, or maybe 63, 64, watching Joni and Neil and all them walk down the street. Yeah. Um, and he stayed, though. You know, he could have easily been one of the Laurel Canyon gang. And you wonder where his music or music history would have done it had that happened. But, you know, he stayed. I Today on Facebook, I've seen so many pictures of uh, friends, many, you know, some who are, are, are singer-songwriters or are artists, with him you know he would pose with other singer songwriters he would pose with people i mean he made a deep personal connection with folks especially with fellow canadians from what i could see yeah it's odd that he wasn't that we didn't sometimes in canada i don't know if you've seen this we we don't appreciate things and then all of a sudden people pass away and then there's this huge outpouring i wonder if we didn't appreciate gordon lightfoot quite enough although certainly today he seemed everyone has come out to talk about how great he was yeah i've I, I don't know about that. I do know in my observation, oh gosh, this is terrible. And believe me, I'm Canadian now, citizen, and I love being in Canada. But sometimes I think that Canadians don't want to shout about themselves too much. Certainly not like Americans who, you know, will tell you we're great even if we're not. You know, it's more of a, a low-key thing. And it seems like he just, uh, it looks, from what I've read, it looks like he really needed to make music. He was constantly creating. And uh, I think he knew he was loved in Canada. He wasn't a big attention getter. He loved being on stage, but I don't think yeah. he liked um, what we would call the biz, you know, the fame side of the music business. And I also think it's probably easier for Canadian artists to retain some of their personal autonomy, yeah, you know, because 
you know, there isn't the same kind of a fetishism of celebrity or icons as there is in the U.S. So he was probably able to, uh, you know, just not totally, you know, not always having someone looking at his next move or whatever moves. So in a way, that's probably a benefit to be a your Canadian artist. You might not get the, uh, you know, the large amount of recognition and acclaim like some Americans do, but at the same time, you know you have an impact, you know that people love you. And I love the fact that he both closed, did the last show at the old Massey Hall and then reopened it when it reopened. Yeah, I wish I'd seen one of those shows. Yeah, that was like home for him. You so, you, you, th- you think we should be doing more to, to honor him, too? You were thinking maybe that uh, we should be lowering the flags in honor of Gordon Lightfoot. Would I do. I, 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 I tweeted that out to the prime minister today. I said, let's not that, yeah, because he reads them all, I'm sure. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he's a really, when I think of, I know that Ian Tyson just died, but when I think uh, of a artist who had a, yeah, I, I think Lightfoot would certainly you know, really captured Canada in a way that really expressed Canadiana too in Canadian history and the stuff we've talked about, as well as his own emotional, uh, you know, his, in, you know, the way, you know, his emotions in a way of, and made them very universal too. I think he deserves it. I don't know what the rules are for doing that sort of thing, but. So, so in the great, in the grand lexicon of pop music, and when we think back over time, uh, I suppose the one constant with Gordon Lightfoot is that he was hard to categorize. And, and right. at times he, he paid the price of that by being sort of slotted into certain things because no one could figure out where exactly to put him. Right. I think so. And also the fact that he was Canadian, you know, unfortunately a lot of the popular music universe is still in the States, especially LA. And like I said earlier, what would have happened had he moved to Laurel Canyon in 1968 if he had been part of that that whole generation that, you know, we still talk about and documentaries are made and all uh, about that, uh, you know, of course, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young went down there and made their, their fortune there, but he stayed. And, you know, I think it was both, you know, probably traded him off, traded off some fame, but as we were just talking about, it gave him the, the space in which to create and not be worried about someone always looking at his every move or he was dating or this and that you know right. sort of looking for you know i i'd read i'd be. read somewhere that he said that canada was was the soil that he grew best in and that's why he stayed i mean it was for 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 whatever reason there was no reason for him to uproot and go somewhere else when everything was so fertile here exactly you know both both literally and figuratively for him he probably he probably got a lot of inspiration well it's clear that he got a lot of inspiration from from Canada, its landscape and its spaces. Well, Norma Coates, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And as we continue our tribute to Gordon Lightfoot tonight, this was one I was really interested in talking about tonight because a few months ago I read a story in the New York Times uh, about the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society and how they continued to work, continued to find shipwrecks, um, in Lake Superior and so forth. And it really got me thinking about the only one that I knew anything about, which was, of course, the Edmund Fitzgerald. And the only reason I knew anything about it was because of Gordon Lightfoot. So they were paying tribute to the late Gordon Lightfoot on the shores of Lake Superior today. His 1976, unlikely 1976 hit, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, commemorates the final voyage of the ship that sank during a severe storm the year before, 1975, the ship called carried iron ore and was once the biggest to sail the Great Lakes. Uh, if you'll remember from the song, none of the 29 crew members survived the wreck, not from where, far from where the ship went down 
in Ontario parts of Lake Superior in November of 1975. Uh, in a place mentioned in the song, actually, Whitefish Bay now sits the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum, which is run by the Historical Society. And there's a permanent exhibit dedicated to the Edmund Fitzgerald and a permanent place in their hearts for the late Gordon Lightfoot. Um, you'll remember the lyrics, right? I was always curious as to how accurate they were. I mean, there's some artistic license in here, but the song goes, when supper time came, the old cook came on deck saying, fellows, it's too rough to feed you. At 7 p.m., a main hatchway caved in. He said, fellows, it's been good to know you. The captain wired in. He had water coming in, and the good ship and crew was in peril. And later that night, when his lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Now, the Society wrote today on their Facebook page that Lightfoot was more than a star. He was a friend. Uh, to him, the song was more than just a hit. Um, he truly cared about the families of that tragedy. And not only did he raise awareness about that specific tragedy, the one that befell that particular ship and its crew of 29, but the many others through history who worked, lived, and sometimes died sailing and working on the Great Lakes. So joining me now is Bruce Lynn, Executive Director of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. Bruce, thank you for your time tonight. Well, thank you, Ben. We appreciate you reaching out to us and uh, a sad day for us here. I mean, I was thinking today about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and just how important it has been. I mean, how much awareness. I don't think I would know anything about that sh that ship if it hadn't been for the song. And I suspect I'm not alone. You're definitely not alone. I mean, we, we talk about this at the Shipwreck Museum all the time, that really, if it wasn't for Gordon Lightfoot writing that song, that the awareness surrounding that shipwreck and really shipwrecks on the Great Lakes in general, um, if it wasn't for him, you know, people wouldn't know about it. And there are thousands of shipwrecks and some of them, you know, even as late as 1966 before the Fitzgerald went down that were dramatic stories. And uh, but people just don't know about them. Uh, and so that tells you a little bit about the impact that Gordon Lightfoot had, you know, on this really seems to be an ongoing story. I wasn't surprised to learn that uh, it wasn't just a song for him, that he'd been to see you. He has actually, he, he's come a few times over the years and the, the most recent time was 2015. It was the 40th anniversary of the sinking of the Fitzgerald. And it was really interesting how this all played out because we had gotten a letter uh, from his agent, a letter uh, that indicated that he was looking to come and visit, but he did not want to be at Whitefish Point at the Shipwreck Museum on November the 10th. It was November the 9th when he wanted to come. Uh, and we had a number of Edmund Fitzgerald surviving family members that were there. And I think really what that was saying was he didn't want this to be about him. So he he wanted to come a day early. And uh, fortunately, we had about about maybe 15 uh, Edmund Fitzgerald surviving family members that were there. And it was a beautiful sunny day, which you're probably aware, Ben, that time of the year. Rare for November, we don't have yes. Any yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of beautiful sunny days. So it was just a wonderful afternoon with him, with uh, so many of these uh, surviving family members. And it was just really interesting to watch the interaction between him and this group. And um, it was just a it was just a fun afternoon. What was that interaction like? Um, you know, he was he was a private man in some ways. He was a very, very comfortable on stage. But he was a private man in some ways, not one to call attention to himself often. And in this case, you're right. I guess he wanted to go the day before to make it an intimate gathering with those, uh, the those, you know, the family members of those who died that day. What was what was it like? And you met him as well, right? 
I did. Yeah, I did meet him. And and you know what I what was striking about the meeting was he was asking questions of us, you know, well, how did you get into this job? You know, how did you get into the museum field and asking us about our work? And I thought, this is great. I mean, here's this internationally renowned and, and beloved uh, singer songwriter from Canada. And he's coming to us at Little Whitefish Point, you know, we're kind of, uh, there's not a lot up there. And uh him asking us about our lives and our work, that was just really nice. And of course, we had a million questions for him, but it was interesting also to hear some of the conversations between him and those family members. And there was a lot of laughter. We have a, there's a historic building that's on site there at Whitefish Point. And we have a big long table. There's a kitchen in this old Coast Guard building. And uh, we were just sitting around and it was like a kind of like a group of old friends talking. And uh, it almost seems surreal, but it was just a great, a great afternoon. What impact did that song have on on the families? Because when we look back at the timing, and I often forget how how quick how quick the song was released after the tragedy it's not often that songs are released about uh, you know we often hear songs that tell historical tales this was very raw history at the time uh, how do the families view the song you know i i you certainly i can't speak for all of them but the, mm-hmm. the family members that i do know and those that come up to Whitefish Point, and we have a memorial ceremony every year uh, on November the 10th. And we have a, a gentleman who actually is part of a Gordon Lightfoot tribute band that will play the song. But I think there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. I think so many of the family members just they love him. The ones that we're you know connected with, uh, he would stay in touch with them, and I think he cared just enough. He cared about what they felt, what they thought about the song, and he even subtly altered the lyrics. A little bit but but you know he he stayed in contact with a lot of them and there was even a, a woman by the name of ruth hudson uh ruth's son was bruce hudson he was a deckhand on board the fitzgerald when it sank you know he would call her they would talk her niece and bruce hudson's cousin pam uh, also was in contact with him but but ruth died in 2015 pam was talking to ruth and uh, she put gordon on the phone and and uh Ruth ended up dying not long after that. So he was able to talk to her, you know, just before she died. So that that's very emotional. And it's uh, the fact that he took the time to have that conversation with her, again, says says a lot about the man. It says it does, because, you know, again, it, it could have just been a song, that story that he told once and then repeated in concert. But clearly it meant a lot more to him than just uh, the, than just that 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 moment in time when he sat down and wrote it as as someone who knows this story so well. How much do you learn from the song? Because I feel like I know the history of the Edmund Fitzgerald just listening to that six and a half minutes. And yet there is so much more to the history than that. Absolutely. Yeah. But he did a great job of telling the story. And, you know, it's it's not a documentary. <laughs> so so not everything is, you know, some people will point out that there was a reference to uh, they were heading for Cleveland and, and, you know, they were actually headed to a place called Zug Island in Detroit. But mm-hmm. I'd like to know someone who could work the words, you know, or the name Zug Island into a song. I just don't really see that. But uh, but no, he did a fantastic job of telling the story. So much of it really captured the story and honestly it's become a part of the history of the shipwreck really i mean again the song most people wouldn't know about it if it wasn't for the song but the fact that he became acquainted with and got to know these family members it just this the whole story of the shipwreck 
really has grown over the years. And obviously Gordon Lightfoot was a huge part of that. And yet the Edmund Fitzgerald was in of itself, the sinking of the ship was was a moment in history. It was, I gather, the, the, the largest of its kind on the Great Lakes for quite a while. And and it was part of a legacy of of both bravery and tragedy uh, on the Great Lakes over, you know, that built our countries, essentially. You're absolutely right. Certainly that was not, and it's not now, an easy job. Um, and, and clearly there are dangers associated with it. So the, yes, the Fitzgerald, when it was launched in 1958, it was the largest ship on the Great Lakes. And then of course, you know, the ships were getting bigger and they were getting bigger. And so, but, but it was a record setting ship. It was, it was fast. It could carry a lot of cargo, um, you know, and it had sailed through a lot of storms. Um, it was clearly wasn't the oldest ship operating out there, but, but it had been through its share of, of storms and, uh, there was another ship out there on November the 10th, 1975, uh, that was close to it called the Arthur M. Anderson. So we have a lot of the history of the communications between those two shipwrecks or ships, rather. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but no, it, it, again, it's all part of the story. Um, and it's something that se- people just seem to have such a strong interest in. Probably one of the primary reasons people come to visit the shipwreck museum at Whitefish Point is to see that exhibit that we have a permanent exhibit which features the bell from the Fitzgerald, the original bell, but so much of that ties back to Gordon Lightfoot and his song, there's no question. And you mentioned that just to raise awareness about, you know, those who worked and toiled and and and, and died on the Great Lakes, that that sort of attention to it has helped with all the other ships that have gone down and all the others who've worked there over the many, many years. It sort of helped to bring this history out from the books a bit. It's it's true. You know, there's there's approximately 6000 shipwrecks on the Great Lakes. And, you know, every one of those ships that went aground or sank out in the middle of Lake Superior or Lake Huron or whatever lake, um, they all had their own story. You know, each one had a crew. Most of those crew members would have had family members back at home. So and for people that are maybe, uh, you know, listening to your program that might be on Prince Edward Island or uh, be in Vancouver or, you know, different parts of the country. You know, maybe they're not as familiar with what, you know, the shipping on the Great Lakes, but Gordon Lightfoot's song really brought a story of a ship on the Great Lakes, um, you know, into that public awareness and, and helped to tell the story of shipping on the Great Lakes a little bit at the same time. And you continue to work as well. I was reading not long ago that there are other wrecks, older ones from uh, from the earlier part of the 20th century, but more than a century ago now that you've that you've located. You continue to, to try to tell the story of these of these wrecks as well. That's true. Yes, we have. It's a it's a part of what we do at the museum that most people will never see. We have a a 50 foot, roughly 50 foot long research vessel uh, that we tow a sonar behind and uh, we are able to look at what's on the bottom, and in this case, on Lake Superior. And we've been fortunate in the last two years, we found 10 shipwrecks, some of them dating back to the 1860s, uh, a couple that sank during World War One. Um, and, and again, they're, they're fascinating stories. And in, in one particular story, there were three ships, and this was November 1914. They departed on Western Lake Superior, a place called Barraga in uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula. We're traveling across the lake and all three disappeared uh, and 28 lives lost, you know, with those three ships. And so these tragedies, these stories, they're out there. Most people don't know about them unless they're shipwreck enthusiasts or they do a lot of research and a lot of reading. But yeah, they're they're out there. So we'll say every November the 10th that uh, really 
the Fitzgerald in a lot of ways, they all have many of those characteristics uh, of the tragic aspects, lost lives, uh, storms. Uh, you know, yeah. The, all, all the, the many things that, that go wrong when ships go down. Right. Exactly. So, and, and, and the Edmund Fitzgerald itself still sits at the bottom of Lake Superior, I believe. It does. Yep. And it's, it's in Canadian waters. It's about 17 miles Northwest of Whitefish point and over a little over 500 feet of water. And um, yes, there, there have been a number of expeditions that have gone down to to try to understand why the ship sank. Um, but as of now, no one has figured it out yet. There's there's no conclusive answer, you know, as to why the ship sank. So I think if you combine the mystery, uh, the fact that it was such a relatively relatively new ship, uh, and throw Gordon Lightfoot's song in there, and you combine these factors, it it, it has become. Uh, a story that holds great fascination for people ever, all over the world, really. I was noticing you're, it's coming up to 50 years, isn't it? And I, I guess Gordon Lightfoot's absence will be felt uh, acutely when you when you mark 50 years since the disaster. Absolutely. Yes. I, you know, who knows if he would have uh, tried to have attended or wanted to join us. I mean, certainly he would have been welcome. Uh, yes. And, and, you know, last time, like I said, we saw him was in 2015. But yes, it would have been fantastic if he could have been there. Well, Bruce Lynn, thank you so much for your perspective on this. It's such an interesting history. Um, um, and it's a history we all share as Canadians and Americans, of course, because we share these lakes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation. 